0: helpful to have the uh, outline that you received as you came in. Um, there's a supplement to the bulletin, and on the inside of that supplement is a uh, outline of the sermon, uh, so that you know where we're going. And as we begin, I'll listen to prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word, and we thank you that you speak to us through your word. And Father we pray now that as we come to consider uh, this passage of scripture uh, that uh, we'd be able to do that um, in a way that uh, honors your word, uh, in a way that submits to it uh, and we pray that you help us to see Jesus uh, more and more clearly and we pray this in his name. Amen. It is way beyond the shadow of doubt that Jesus existed that he lived in Israel 2000 years ago, uh, that he taught people and did miracles, but who was he? What was his significance? Was he simply a teacher, or simply a miracle worker, or something more? Who do you say Jesus is? Some people say that he's a prophet. Uh, Many of our Muslim friends will say that that he is a prophet of God, one among many. Some say that he is a guru. Some of our Hindu friends will place him as uh, one of their many teachers or even deities. Uh, Some will say that he is a great moral teacher, like Confucius or, or Gautama Buddha. Others will say that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who deserves all our worship. The one who we're made to serve for all our lives and for all eternity. Who do you say Jesus is? The question of Jesus' identity was an important one in his own lifetime as well. Because how people thought of him determined how they treated him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish religious leaders, they decided that he was a menace. And the miracles that he was doing was coming from an evil source. And so they plotted to kill him. On the other hand, his disciples followed him. They heard him preach and teach as someone with authority. They saw him do extraordinary things that only God could do. Controlling nature and healing the sick and raising the dead. And feeding thousands of people with a tiny amount of food. He'd been doing all those things. And yet his identity, perhaps grasped briefly on occasions by the disciples was never fully confessed by them until this point in our passage today Jesus is in the region around Caesarea Philippi Caesarea Philippi was a town about 30 kilometers north of the Sea of Galilee and you may recall last week that he crossed the sea after scolding the Pharisees and the Sadducees Uh, now he's heading north away from them away from the hothouse of uh, Jewish religious life, and into the privacy of a Gentile north, Jesus prepares to shoot for a goal with his disciples. He's going to pop them the question. Now look at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? What opinions are floating around the place about who I am? And there were all kinds of opinions, and the ones that the disciples give here are the positive ones. Some, verse fourteen, say John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a forerunner of Jesus, the one who called Israel to repentance before before Jesus came. He was a, a great contemporary prophetic figure who had recently been killed by King Herod. And some people must have thought that Jesus was John come back, or perhaps John's replacement. Others say Elijah. One of the great prophets of the Old Testament who called Israel back to God when they turned away and followed idols. And he's the one that God had promised would come back before the Messiah. So Israel was waiting for him. And still others. Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Another one, Jeremiah, another one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. It could be him, could be many of the other prophets. You get the theme, don't you? Prophet. And Jesus fits in the prophetic model, doesn't he? He speaks the word of God. He must be one of the prophets. Those are all very positive views about the identity of Jesus. Most people didn't agree with the Pharisees and Sadducees, whom we saw last week rejected him as an agent of the devil. They thought he was a prophet. And the view of him was positive, but inadequate. And even today there's lots of people who have positive but inadequate views of Jesus. There are not many people around who go around saying nasty things about him. It's you know, more, political, more politically correct to try and domesticate him instead of slandering him. And so some will say he's a prophet but only a prophet. Or a guru, a great moral teacher, an enlightened one, one that was positive but not adequate. The crowds had their various theories as to which prophet he might be, but essentially they thought he was a prophet. True at one level, but not adequate. It's like if someone was to ask me who you are, and I said, well, you're a mammal. That's true at one level, isn't it? But you're so much more than that, aren't you? You are a mammal, you're a special mammal, you're a human being, and there's, there's all kinds of things to say about you and your life that are far more important than saying that you're a mammal. See, calling Jesus a prophet or a teacher is true, but it's inadequate. In fact, it's impossible to say that Jesus was only a prophet or only a good teacher because he claimed to be so much more. And if he was just a prophet, then he would be a false prophet. If he was just a teacher, he would be a false teacher. This is what C.S. Lewis writes. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. the crowds thought that Jesus was a prophet the Pharisees and Sadducees thought that he was an agent of the devil and now Jesus turns to his disciples the men who have been with him and following him and he asked them the question, last time he was asking for public opinion this time he wants to know how they will answer it for themselves verse 15 but what about you He asked, "Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? How would you answer that question? Who would you say that Jesus is?" Well, Simon Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, gives his answer in verse sixteen. Simon answered. Simon Peter answered. You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. See, for Peter, it was, it was all making sense. The coming of Jesus, and the teaching of John, the miraculous healings, the authority, the feedings in the desert, the raising of the dead girl, the walking on water, they were showing us something, isn't it? This is more than a prophet. He is the Christ, the, the Son of the Living God. The, the word Christ is a title. It means anointed one or king. It's the Greek word which corresponds to the Hebrew word uh, uh, of the Messiah. And so John is saying that, uh, uh, sorry, Peter is saying that, that Jesus is the King. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the one that God has been promising. He would rule His people Israel, and that rule will be extended to all the world. He is God's promised ruler. God promised his ancestor David that that his heir would be on the throne of Israel forever. We read about that earlier. And Jesus was the true son of David. The one to whom David and all his heirs had been pointing. God promised his ancestor David that he would treat his kingly heirs as sons. And Jesus was the unique son of God. The one to whom the sonship of all the kings in the past had been pointing. Jesus is the Christ. The son of the living God. And in Jesus, all the promises to David, which you read about, are coming true. It's not just a prophet. He's God's appointed ruler of the world. You are the Christ, Peter says, the son of the living God. Others might have said things like this before, but I think Peter was probably the first one to really grasp it. Not because he was smarter than anyone else, but... Because God enabled him to see it and believe, and so Jesus responds to his confession in verse seventeen. Jesus replied, "Blessed are you, Simon son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven." See whether or not Peter realized that God was the one who was active in his life and enabling him to believe in Jesus. And Jesus wants Peter to know that the reason that he understands and believes is not because of his cleverness, because of God's choice and his revelation. And so Jesus goes on. He says in verse 18 and 19, he says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now what does that mean? Now those words have become a very controversial part of the Bible. Because it's often used by the Roman Catholic Church to say that Peter is given the elevated place, that he is the first Pope, and now the Pope holds the same authority. Ah, The church is built on Peter, they say, and he has the power of the keys to bind and loose, to, to grant entry in the church and to excommunicate from it. On the other hand, Protestant scholars have understandably sought to deny that. They say, oh, it's not... Peter that Jesus is building his church on it's it's Peter's faith or or Peter's confession of who Jesus is or they say it's the truth revealed to Peter that Jesus is building his his church on or Jesus teaching or on Jesus or God himself anything to get away from Peter because that's what the Roman Catholics say and that might end up in papacy and brothers and sisters when we look at these verses we must be careful not to simply read them so that we get out of it what we want to get out of it Jesus is our king So he tells us what to think and we mustn't put words in his mouth to suit our polemics. So let's look carefully at the text and what can we say about these verses. The first thing to note is that Jesus calls Simon his new name, Peter. It's a name that he'd given him. Simon says to Jesus, you are the Christ. And Jesus says to Simon, you are Peter. In the Old Testament, God gave new names to very significant people. People who were foundational in his plans and purposes, he gave Abraham and Sarah a new names, Abraham and Sarah. He gave Jacob a new name, Israel. People who were foundational to the people of God, ancestors of God's people. And here in the New Testament, Jesus gives Simon a new name. Something significant is happening here in terms of God's new people. And Jesus doesn't leave, leave Peter in the dark about the significance of his name. Peter means rock and so the second thing we notice is that Peter the rock will be the foundation of the church Jesus says very clearly in verse 18 Blessed, uh, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church right? it's a pun that Jesus is using here you are Peter which means rock and on this rock I will build my church that's what it says Now, the word church means gathering, or assembly, or meeting. When the word is used in the Old Testament, it refers to times when God's people gathered together for an assembly. Uh, To meet God, to hear God's law, to prepare for war. It's a gathering. They were called God's church. But Jesus said he would build his church, his assembly, his gathering, his meeting. Not Peter's church but Jesus' church. And this church that Jesus is talking about is not a building, not even a denomination. Remember? Gathering, meeting, assembly. And we know from the rest of the New Testament that this gathering is a spiritual one. It's gathered around Jesus in heaven. And it's a gathering of all true Christians. Everyone who truly trusts in the Lord Jesus and is part of his kingdom from time back and forward. And whether we Protestants like it or not, Jesus said he was going to build his church on Peter, the rock. Peter would be foundational in this church, though the church would truly belong to Jesus Christ. The third thing to notice is that the gates of hell will not overcome the church. And I'm not entirely sure what Jesus means. There's two main possibilities. First it could mean that the forces of evil the gates of hell the forces of evil will not be able to destroy the church. And God will always have his people no matter what. Satan and the evil powers will not overcome it. Or the other option it could be that death will not overcome the church. The gates of hell could simply refer to the, the, the place of the dead. Uh, in Isaiah 38 verse 10 it, the term is used as a metaphor for death. And so Jesus could be saying that not even death will overcome the church of Christ. Because the true church of Jesus Christ is a gathering, an assembly, a congregation that will last forever. So whether Jesus is referring to evil forces or he's referring to death when he talks about the gates of hell, what he's saying is the church will not be overcome. The heavenly gathering is invisible now, but one day will be seen in all its splendor. On that day we will stand before God's people around his throne. In his church, his assembly, his gathering, his congregation. As we sang just now. And worship the lamb who got us there. That is the true church of Jesus Christ. And the gates of hell will not and cannot prevail against it. The next thing we notice is that the keys of the kingdom are given to Peter. Jesus says to him in verse 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Uh, this term, keys of the kingdom, is found in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, uh, where God says to the steward, who is like the manager in charge of the palace, that he's going to sack him and replace him with someone else. Uh, Isaiah 22 verse 20 says, In that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. But David is the king. So the key to the house of David is the, is the key of the kingdom. So when Jesus says he's giving Peter the keys of the kingdom, he's, he's saying his job is going to be like that of Eliakim. So Jesus is the king, but the right-hand man looks after the keys to the palace. He manages the place. And Jesus says to Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. I'm the king, you're my steward. What does it mean in practice? Verse 19. It says, I will give you uh, whatever you bind on earth, Will be bound, or better, if you look at the uh, little. Oh, uh, well, doesn't it? It's not this. Ah, oh, yes, it is in the little footnotes. Uh, the little footnotes is probably a better translation. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. See, Peter holds the kingdom keys of the kingdom, and he makes decisions about it. And yet when he does that under God's sovereignty he will simply be declaring the decisions that have already been made by God in heaven. He has authority to bind and loose to permit and to forbid. And yet the decisions he would make would be the ones that have already been made by God. Because God is sovereign, see. Now again, that doesn't quite gel with the traditional Protestant line on this passage, does it? But like I said before, what we read and what I need to preach and what we need to believe is what's in the text, not something that has to just reinforce our prejudices. At this point, I think the text is with the Roman Catholics. Having said that, however, there is one point in which the Protestant scholars are absolutely right. There is no evidence in scripture to suggest that Peter was ever meant to hand those keys on to anyone else. There is absolutely nothing in the Bible, including 1 and 2 Peter, to make anyone think that the authority that Jesus was entrusting to Peter could be passed on from someone else to someone else from generation to generation. Whether or not Peter was ever a bishop of Rome we don't know, but we do know that Jesus is giving him authority here as a believing apostle, not as a Roman bishop and apostles are never replaced when they die they are apostles for all time and the one exception is Judas he was replaced not because he died but because he fell away he betrayed the Lord and the rest of the apostles remain apostles and so there is not a shred of evidence which would make one think that the Pope would have the keys today in fact even in the early church the Bishop of Rome didn't have any more power than the other cities like Constantinople or Alexandria and so while Jesus was going to give Peter the keys to the kingdom, and while Peter intended was tended to be the foundation on which the church was built, you you can't use this passage of scripture to justify the papacy. The papacy was a, a later political development, it happened much later, and you can't just you can't use this passage for it. But lest you think that this authority is unique to Peter, Jesus says something very similar about the binding and loosing to the other apostles. We'll look at it in details when we've actually reached there, but look across the page at chapter 18, verse 18. And there he's talking to all the apostles together, and he says, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So this binding and loosing is not limited to Peter. The other apostles have a share in it too. In fact, as far as the foundation of the church is concerned as well, the Apostle Paul will later say in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, that God's household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So the foundation that, that Paul talks about here certainly includes Peter. And in fact, Peter in this passage may well be the, the first part of the foundation being laid, but it's no longer limited to him. And as the other apostles come to share in Peter's faith in the Lord Jesus, they come to share in his apostolic authority as well. As they recognized who Jesus is, they in turn were given the same responsibilities. But who are the apostles today? If the apostles are not replaced when they die, then who holds the power of the keys? Who looses and binds? Well, the answer is still the apostles, isn't it? The church today is still built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. They laid the foundation. The, the binding and the loosings has already been done. They bound and they loosed as they dealt with the various issues in the early church. And, and we have access to their decisions through the apostolic and prophetic writings which we know as the New Testament. And friends, God stands behind the decisions of the apostles. God stands behind what is what written. And what they allow, God has already allowed and what they forbid, God has already forbidden. So we need to make sure that we submit to and obey the word of God in the apostolic writings. Now, we've seen that the blessings and duties of Peter are extended to some extent to the other apostles as well. And yet, there is a sense in which Peter remains the leader of the apostolic band. For he led the way in the, using the keys of the kingdom. Remember, it was he who preached the gospel on the first day, the day of Pentecost. To all the Jews and thousands of people entered the kingdom for the first time. He used his keys to open the palace where where he was the steward. And later on in the gospel went out to the Samaritans. The the Samaritans were the half-caste Israelites, the remnants of the northern northern kingdom which had been destroyed by the Assyrians 700 years before. Uh, And when the Samaritans believed, God waited until Peter and John arrived before he sent them the Spirit. Because Peter had been given the apostolic keys. And as Peter and John prayed for the people, they loosed on earth what had been loosed in heaven, and God sent his spirit upon them, and Pentecost happened for the Samaritans. And later God sent a vision to Peter, when he wanted to start the next section of the, uh, uh, of the mission, uh, to, to go to the Gentiles, he says, a vision to Peter. And he sends an, an angel to, to, to a Gentile called Cornelius, a long way away, and brings them together for Peter to preach the gospel to him in spite of Peter's initial apprehension and as Peter told him about Jesus the Holy Spirit came upon him as well and his household in another mini Pentecost third stage of God's mission had begun Peter had used his keys to open the gates for the Gentiles to come in so the gospel went out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth and friends this only happened because God had planned it beforehand. What Peter loosed on earth had already been loosed in heaven. So now the door of the kingdom's open. The apostolic gospel is proclaimed to all. The message about who Jesus is and what he's done is for the Jews, for the Samaritans, for the ends of the earth, the Gentiles like us. The palace steward has said, come on in, if you want to enter the kingdom, no matter what background you're from. And that's because that's what the king wanted him to do. But it isn't always that way. There was a time when the door hadn't yet been opened and the identity of Jesus was kept a secret. And that was that point in time in verse 20. And Jesus warns his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Why is that? What's the point of having this secret? Why does Jesus not want anyone to know his true identity? Well, come back next week and we'll see that we'll see that the kind of king that Jesus is, is is very different from the kind of king that people were expecting. He's very different from the kind of king that Peter was expecting. wasn't going to be a political rule. And so Jesus now had to begin a whole process of re-education as to what kingship meant. And it meant rejection and suffering and death before resurrection and life. For the king would gain his kingdom by dying for his people and then be raised from the dead as Lord of all. But friends, the secret of Jesus' identity is a secret no more, isn't it? The message of the apostles about Jesus has has gone out. The keys have opened the doors of the kingdom to, to the Jews, the Samaritans and the Gentiles. And friends, you and I know that Jesus claimed to be the king. We know that he backed up his claims with the miracles that confirm the Old Testament expectations of God's king. And more than that, we know that God raised him from the dead. In his resurrection, God the Father has publicly affirmed that Jesus is the Christ. He is God's promised king, the one who rules the world. And who one day will return to judge the living and the dead. And So as we close then, let me ask you the question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he a prophet? Is he a guru? Is he a great moral teacher? Or is he the son of God? Is he the king that God had been promising? Is he the Lord, the ruler of all? If you're not sure the answer to that question, then then do read one of the Gospels, won't you? Look at the evidence for the resurrection. And above all, call upon God to open your heart To know, like Peter, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if you do believe that Jesus is the promised King, let me ask you another question. Is he your King? Is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the King in your life? Have you surrendered to him, the throne of your heart? Are you prepared to follow him, even unto death? Are you be prepared to, to be part of his true church, the, the eternal gathering in heaven of all who belong to him? Are you willing to submit to his rule? Are you truly his subject? Or is he simply a figurehead that you bring out on ceremonial occasions? Who do you say Jesus is? And who is Jesus in relation to you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have given your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that uh, he came among us, and that he lived among us, and he showed your greatness. We thank you that you've caused Peter and so many other people down through the ages to recognize that, that he is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. Our Father, our prayer is that, that each one of us here would, would come to that recognition as well. And not only recognize that he is the Christ, uh, but to submit to him as the Christ, the King, and to follow him and to trust in him and his death for us. Father, we pray that uh, we would be people who who do that. And as the King rules us by his word, help us to to submit to what you have to say to us through the apostolic writings. Father, we pray um, that together, Um, as as subjects of this King Uh, we would reflect him more and more uh, and be more and more like him we pray this in his name Amen